Welcome. Thanks for tuning to Impact. Our mission is to love, learn, and serve. And now, here's the message. Without a doubt, the most popular Christian song of the last 200 years has been that great hymn, Amazing Grace. For over 200 years, so many Christians have been blessed by this song. And one of the reasons I love that song so much is because of the story behind that song. You see, Amazing Grace was written in the 1700s by a man named John Newton. And John Newton, in his early adult years, had done one of the most wretched things that any human being could ever do. You see, John Newton was a slave ship captain, and he was responsible for kidnapping dozens, if not hundreds, of Africans against their will and forcing them into the slave trade in Great Britain. Well, he ended up becoming a Christian, and several years after becoming a Christian, he quit the slave trade. And after quitting the slave trade, God began to convict him more and more about how heinous and wicked the practice of slavery was. And so finally, at the age of about 46, John Newton reflected back on the life that he had lived as a slave ship captain, and he penned those famous words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And hundreds of millions of Christians have loved that song over the last 200 plus years. But in all honesty, there's part of that song, more specifically there's one word in that song, that most Christians don't like very much. It's right there in the first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Honestly, most Christians don't like that word wretch because we don't think of ourselves as wretches, do we? I looked up the definition of that word wretch this last week and and I was a little surprised by how strong of a word this word wretch is. Now catch this. The word wretch means, it means despicable. It means someone who is a scoundrel, someone who's a villain, a reprobate, a delinquent, a creep, a jerk, a good-for-nothing, a snake in the grass, a lowlife. Someone who is a wretch is a scumbag. And so, honestly, we don't look at ourselves and consider ourselves to be scumbags, do we? We don't consider ourselves to be lowlifes. But when John Newton wrote those words, he did think that about himself. And as we turn to Luke chapter 7 this morning together, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. We're going to read about a woman who everyone in the town looked down upon. And she was right there with John Newton. She was a woman who thought of herself as a wretch. She disagreed with most of our opinions of ourselves these days. She thought of herself as a wretch. And you know what? She was right. So make sure you have your Bibles handy. We're in Luke chapter 7. I'm calling this message today, Good News, Bad News. There's so much bad news in our culture today, but we're going to give you some good news in the midst of the bad news today. Amen? Amen. We're in Luke chapter 7, and we'll be starting in verse 36. I encourage you to have those Bibles handy as we read and study God's Word together over the next few minutes. Starting in verse 36, we read, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The setting for this Bible passage is a banquet. It was a party. And it was a party held by a Pharisee. Remember that the Pharisees in Jesus' day were the religious leaders who were legalists. Uh, They knew the Old Testament laws like the back of their hand. And they believed in following laws so much that they even added extra laws to God's laws and obeyed those extra laws as well. So here we have this religious leader, this Pharisee, who invites Jesus over to a party at his house. In all likelihood, there were a lot of people at that party that day, but only three of them are mentioned here in this passage in Luke 7. First of all, we have Jesus, the Lord, our Savior. He is one of the three mentioned. Secondly, we have the Pharisee. A little bit later in the passage, past where we just read, we learn that his name was Simon. And so Simon the Pharisee is the second character in the story. And the third character isn't even identified by name. It's a woman. And in verse 37, it says she was a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. There's no way to know for sure, but in all likelihood, this woman was a prostitute. She had plied her trade in that town, and everybody knew her, and they didn't know her for good reasons. In all likelihood, she was a prostitute. And so it's safe to say that she was not invited to this party at the religious leader's house. She was a party crasher. Uh, So I'd like you to ask yourself an important question. Can I relate more with Simon, the party host, or can I relate more with the woman who was the party crasher? Simon was the good boy. Uh, He was the good boy. The woman was the bad girl. In all likelihood, Simon attended church every single weekend. He was very religious. He did what every good Jewish boy was supposed to do. He was a religious man. And then the woman, on the other hand, good chance she hadn't stepped foot in a Jewish synagogue in quite some time. And she didn't exactly live a life that most Jews were supposed to live back then. Simon's parents were very proud of him. He had grown up to become a very respected man in culture, a a, a very admired man. And then on the other hand, this woman, most likely her parents were ashamed of her. And she did all sorts of things that were considered disrespectful. And maybe they had even disowned her. And so do you identify more with the respected Jewish leader, the host of that party, or with this bad girl in the story? who was disrespected and shunned by her own culture. Who do you relate with more? Well, here in this passage, we read in verse 36 that one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house, and Jesus reclined at the table. Now, as you probably remember, Jesus and Pharisees weren't exactly on the best of terms. Uh, The Pharisees didn't like Jesus very much, and he wasn't too wild about them either. But Jesus had this practice. When someone invited him over to dinner, more often than not, he would go. It didn't matter if it was a tax collector. It really didn't matter if it was a crooked businessman or, in this case, a self-righteous Pharisee. It didn't really matter if someone was willing to have Jesus come over to their house. Jesus, more often than not, went. 
Because to him, it was more important to have this opportunity to share the good news of salvation than worry about his reputation among the people of authority in that culture. And so Jesus accepted the Pharisees' invitation. He went over to Simon's house for dinner. Jesus goes over to the Pharisees' house and uh, he goes over there and says he was reclining at the table and in came the party crasher. In comes the woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. Now, when you and I picture Jesus having a dinner meal, uh, we tend to have this image come to mind. You see that? There Jesus is at the Last Supper. And it's as if Jesus called all of the disciples over to one side of the table so they could take selfies of each other. And so we have this mental image of Jesus uh, being at this long table with these tall chairs. And there are a couple things wrong with that picture. Uh, First of all, these are not the kinds of tables that people sat in in Jesus' day in Israel. The tables weren't tall. The tables were actually very short and low to the ground. They liked the tables short so they could slide them under the bed to save space in their homes so they could have a multi-purpose room of sorts. And so the tables were short, and they didn't have these tall chairs either. That's the second problem with that Last Supper painting. They didn't sit in tall chairs. They reclined by being on these low cushions or low couches that were on the ground, and they would sit oftentimes leaning on their left elbow so they could reach out and eat with their right hand, their dominant hand, and their legs would typically be behind them, just as you can see in the picture there. And so Jesus here, when it says he was reclining at the table, he was literally reclining at the table, doing what Jews did in those days at a dinner party, leaning on his left arm, eating with his right hand, legs behind him. So with his feet behind him, you can imagine it would be much easier for this woman to come into the room and begin to wet Jesus' feet with her tears, to wipe them with her hair, and to anoint those feet with the perfume. His feet were behind him, So she had an easy access to them. And so there Jesus is, reclining at the table. This woman comes in. It says in verses 37 and 38, she had lived a sinful life in that town. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, there are four key verbs used here in verse 38 that highlight what the woman was doing here. It says that she was weeping. It says that she was wiping his feet with her hair. Number three, she was kissing those feet. And number four, she was pouring perfume on them. Here's something I find really interesting. In the original Greek language, all four of these verbs are used in the imperfect tense. What matters that make? Well, here it makes a lot of difference. Because in the imperfect tense, it means when she was doing these things, these things were taking place over and over and over again. So think about this for a moment. As this woman stood behind Jesus, she kept weeping. And as she bent down, she kept wiping his feet with her hair. And she kept kissing his feet over and over and over again. And then finally, as she poured perfume on his feet, she poured perfume on his feet over and over and over again. So what's the point? The point is this. The woman carried on these actions 
for an embarrassingly long period of time. And you can imagine at this dinner party where this woman was a party crasher. She had not been invited. She was not respected. She was not liked. She was considered to be the scum of the earth by every man in that room except for Jesus. This woman, over and over again, weeping and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and pouring perfume over him. This was going on so long, every man in the room was getting more and more embarrassed. Except... For Jesus. Everybody was uncomfortable except for Jesus. So in verse 39, Simon says to himself, If this man Jesus really were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So what Simon really was saying was this. This woman is a filthy sinner, and she's not welcome in my home. And if Jesus was half the man that people say that he is, Jesus wouldn't welcome this woman either. Because after all, she's a despicable person. She's a wretch. She's a scoundrel. She's a reprobate. She's a delinquent. She's a creep. She's a good-for-nothing. She's a snake in the grass. She's a lowlife. She's a scumbag. Clearly, Jesus accepted her anyway. It's a remarkable reality. Despite those things that she was, Jesus accepted her anyway. She was a wretch. She was a scoundrel. She was a lowlife. She was a scumbag. All of those things, even by her own admission. But Jesus accepted her anyway. Chuck Swindoll makes this wonderful point in talking about these verses. He writes, Throughout his earthly ministry... Jesus never compromised the righteousness of God, yet he remained utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. No incident illustrates this better than the day a prostitute crashed the Pharisees' party. Did you catch that important phrase? Deeply flawed people. Jesus remained utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. People. To that I say amen. Because if Jesus wasn't utterly accepting of deeply flawed people, then I would be lost. My case would be hopeless. And so too would yours. I want you to jot this down if you have a pen and paper handy. This is a lesson about acceptance that's revealed here. Jesus is utterly accepting of deeply flawed people who come to him Humbly. Jesus is utterly accepting of deeply flawed people who come to him humbly. This woman came to him humbly, as humble as she knew how. And Jesus was utterly accepting of her. Well, this sinful woman kept carrying on and on and on. She's crying and she's weeping and she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. She's pouring more and more perfume over his feet. And as she carries on, Simon began to have second thoughts about having invited Jesus over to his house for dinner. This was way more uncomfortable than he bargained for. He had no idea going into this that this would be such an uncomfortable dinner situation. But it was. And being God, Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. So in verses 40 through 42, Jesus shares a little parable here with Simon. Let's pick up here in verse 40. Jesus answered Simon, Simon, I I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. 
Well, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Which will love him more? In Jesus' day, uh, a day laborer was typically paid one denarii for a full day's work. And so you might think of that as our modern minimum wage. And so as of last year, January 1st, 2019, uh, most uh, companies in California need to pay their employees $12 an hour. That's our current minimum wage. Actually, right now, for larger companies in California, it's up to 13 But let's look at that $12 an hour. If you work an eight-hour day, that's about $100 for a day laborer. $100 is what you'd earn in a day at minimum wage in California. Well, Jesus is talking about these day laborers here. And so if you do the math here, he's talking about one man who is in debt $5,000 to his lender. And the other man is in debt $50,000 to his lender. One man is 10 times more in debt than the other. One owes 5000 the other owes $50,000. And so Simon answers Jesus' question when Jesus is a- asks him uh, which one of these debtors loves the lender the most when those debts are forgiven. And Simon gives the obvious answer. Well, it's the man who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus says, you're right. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to walk away from this parable focusing on the fact that one man was ten times the sinner of the other one. That's not the focus here. Uh, Jesus, first of all, wanted us to realize that those that are forgiven a lot tend to love more. They tend to love more than those that are forgiven less. But there's another point that Jesus is making here. He wants us to understand if you're the guy with the smaller debt, that's nothing to brag about. Uh, that guy that was forgiven the $5,000 isn't going to go home that day and say, Woohoo, I'm one-tenth of the moron of the next guy. No. Yeah, he was forgiven just one-tenth of what his buddy was that was forgiven $50,000. But that's nothing to brag about. He was still in debt, right? He was still given grace. He was still given mercy. The point of the parable then, in large part, is to reveal that all of us are in debt. All of us are sinners. All of us are in need of mercy and grace. You think about it, if uh, you and I decide to jump off the Grand Canyon, let's say you jump off the Grand Canyon and fall a thousand feet to your death. I jump off the Grand Canyon and I fall only 100 feet to my death. Am I supposed to brag, woohoo, I fell only 10% as far as you did. Who cares, we're both dead in the Grand Canyon. So some of us may need a little bit more forgiveness than others, but we're still in the same boat. We all fall short. We're all sinners. We're all in debt to a holy God who demands that that sin be paid for. So, Simon the Pharisee, when you think about it, he had straight A's in identifying other people's sin. He was really good at it. He had straight A's in identifying this woman's sin who came in and anointed Jesus' feet. He had straight A's. And pointing out other people's flaws. But you know what? He flunked every class on identifying his own sin. He was terrible at identifying what in his own life kept him from being right with God. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, Simon's real problem was blindness. It was easy for him to say, she is a sinner. But impossible for him to say, I am also a sinner. 
Let's pick up in verse 44. Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman here? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go. In peace. Go in peace. Well, I think God gives us here a wonderful lesson in self-awareness. And it goes like this. I encourage you to jot this down if you still have that paper handy. Until we open our eyes and see that we are deeply flawed and admit that we desperately need God's grace and healing, we will never receive it. Unless we open our eyes and see the truth about ourselves, that we are sinners in the eyes of a perfect, holy God. And unless we open those eyes and see ourselves as God sees us, and unless we humble ourselves and admit that we are a sinner who is desperately in need of God's grace, we'll never receive God's grace. It'll never come. One of the most foolish sins I could ever commit would be to blindly think that I don't have any sin for Jesus to forgive. After all, even my wife knows that I'm a sinner. And she loves me more than about anyone else on the planet. She knows that I'm a sinner. My kids know that I'm a sinner. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm a sinner. So how foolish for me to try to deceive myself and others into believing that I'm not a sinner. Believing that I am somehow deserving of heaven. Somehow deserving of God's relationship and His mercy and His grace. I'm not deserving. Those that know us best know that we fall short. And God knows that better than any person. When I open my eyes and recognize that I'm desperately in need of God, that opens the door for God to come and cover me with His mercy. You see, God's mercy and forgiveness and never-failing love are offered only to those of us who come to Him humbly in desperation and ask Him for it. Ask Him for that grace. Ask Him for that mercy. Asking Him for that forgiveness. We come to Him and we say something to the effect of, God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I know I don't deserve it, but please, God, would you forgive me? God, I have failed you over and over again. I've turned my back on you. I know I don't deserve, Lord, for you to have mercy and grace on me. But would you give it to me anyways, God? I beg of you, would you give it to me anyway? I tell you, God responds quickly to those kinds of humble prayers of repentance. He responds quickly with his amazing grace. And he specializes in covering those with grace that come to him. In humble repentance. Oh, what a blessing to see that this woman was wise enough to do what Simon was not wise enough to do. She was wise enough to recognize that she fell short and needed the grace of God through Christ. So I want to ask you, are you more like the party host or are you more like the 
party crasher. I want to be honest with you. I hope and pray that you are more like the party crasher. Because if you're not, if you're not more like the party crasher, there's really no hope for you to fall under the grace of God. There's no hope for you if you're not willing to come to Him humbly as this woman in Luke 7 came to Jesus humbly. You see, God despises self-righteousness. He hates it when sinners say, I'm much better than you are. God hates it when we say, I'm so much more moral than you are. God hates it when we say, you know what? I'm a good person and I am more deserving of heaven than any of those other low lives around me. God hates that pride. God hates that self-righteousness. It says in Proverbs 16, 18, look at it on the screen there. It says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It says in James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and completely ignore, you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Please hear me loud and clear on this. If you insist on buying into the lie that you are right with God because you are a good person, I'm telling you, you'll never be right with God. That's a lie that you're a good person deserving of heaven without Christ. If you keep comparing yourself to people you know who have goofed up more than you have, if you compare yourself to people who have lied more than you or gotten drunk more than you or skipped church more than you or cheated God one way or another more than you or cheated on their spouses more than you, if you keep comparing yourself to people who you think sinned worse than you are, there's no hope for you. Because ultimately, you may only fall a hundred feet off of the Grand Canyon rim, but you're in the same foul boat as that guy that falls a thousand feet. You're every bit as much in need of God's grace as the next guy you're comparing yourself to. In fact, it says in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament that our best deeds are like filthy rags compared to God's goodness and His righteousness. It says right there in Isaiah 64, 6, All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Think about that. The best things you have ever done on your own are like filthy rags compared to God's goodness and righteousness. And so let me ask you, are you bold enough to take your filthy rags and show that to our holy God on Judgment Day and say, I deserve to go to heaven because of this? I hope none of us are that arrogant to think that our filthy rags could have a chance of getting us into heaven. They never can. They never can. You know, God, as He looks at those filthy rags of ours, looks at them with compassion and mercy and grace. He wants us to reach out and receive that grace and receive that forgiveness so He can take those filthy rags and transform them into something beautiful. It says in the book of Revelation that the church once it's been washed by Jesus Christ, will be like a bride beautifully dressed in white for the bridegroom. What a wonderful thought. What is dirty rags on our own can be transformed into something beautiful and pure and spotless and white 
by the grace of God. The truth is, on our own, I am a wretch, and so are you. The truth is, the world tries to convince us that we are basically good, but the Bible really says quite the opposite. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve and how sin came into the world thousands of years ago, you and I are basically bad. We're all in the same boat with John Newton and the woman at Jesus' feet. We're all in the same boat. We're all basically scoundrels and reprobates. We're all basically delinquents and snakes in the grass. And more than we'd like to admit, we are in the same boat as those who we would call lowlifes and scumbags. Because we say and do the exact same things that those we look down, of those that we look down upon. Now, the Pharisee here in Luke 7 bought into a dangerous lie. He bought into the same lie that millions of Americans buy into today. You see, the Pharisee bought into the lie that those who sin the least will make it to heaven. Ever thought about that? Ever known people who believe that? Possibly you believe that in the past as well. Maybe some of you listening to this message believe it right now. Those who sin the least will make it to heaven. But that's a dangerous lie. The person with the fewest sins does not make it into heaven. Whether your sins are few or many, you are no more or more less deserving of heaven than the next guy. Regardless of how many sins are on your ledger, your only chance of making it to heaven is by God's amazing grace. So what do you need to do? What do you need to do? Today is Decision Sunday. And we encourage you to get right with God today. And for those of you asking the best question you could ever ask, what do I need to do to get saved? I want to just give you the ABCs of reaching out and receiving God's grace through Jesus Christ. A. Admit that you are a sinner. Admit that you are a sinner. Admit that you need the grace of God and you're hopeless without that grace. B. Believe in your heart. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Not just for my sins. Not just for the sins of your family and friends. But He died on the cross for your sins because you desperately needed that gift that He gave you on the cross. And then C. Choose to follow Jesus Christ from this point forward. And choose to obey His commands. That's it, the ABCs. Admit that you are a sinner and need God's grace. Believe in Jesus and that He died on the cross for your sins. And choose to follow Him and obey His commands. And if you've made that choice, you've chosen to follow Him, there are two things that Jesus says to do in obedience to His commands. The first two things you need to do if you are serious that you are choosing to follow Christ. Number one, you have to repent from your sin. That word repent means to make a spiritual U-turn. You go from doing your own thing and going your own way to making a spiritual U-turn, putting Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life and letting Him call the shots from this point forward. You let Him call the shots. You make a spiritual U-turn and He is now in charge. And the second thing He says to do is to be baptized. You have to be baptized. You have to go into the water and be saying to God, the angels, and anyone who's watching or listening, I am giving my life to Jesus Christ. 
I am following Him from this point forward. As I go under the water, it's like my old life is buried. As I come up out of the water, it's like I'm being raised to walk a brand new life following Jesus Christ. Those are the ABCs. Admit, believe, and choose to follow Christ. I hope that many of you will make this decision today. But as you're thinking about making that decision, I want to share with you just a couple testimonies from a couple members in our church a couple of our attenders who have had an amazing encounter with the amazing grace of God. Good morning, church. 